Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ryan Sherman. We're at Methven Family Vineyards. It's February 23rd, 2022. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, biggest question, is why wine? Why wine? That's a good question. Um, one that I hadn't really thought about too much. <laughs> um, why wine? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people have the story. They grew up in houses where their families enjoyed wine, things like that, and I, I, I didn't. Uh, however, what my family did enjoy was going was going out for for dinners and and you know fairly big uh, uh, you know kind of big deal dinners. Uh, and growing up in in New York, that was uh, that was pretty easy. Um, so even though my family had never been in the wine industry or in the restaurant industry, I got you know a lot of exposure to mm-hmm. a lot of the great restaurants uh, at a young age and uh, just felt really drawn to to the whole, you know, to restaurants as a whole. So uh, I guess I started in restaurants at about 15 or so, and just, you know, busboy, that kind of thing, dishwasher, and kind of got bit by that bug and, and really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, through, uh, uh, you know, through college and, and gap years, uh, continued to work in restaurants and along the line, uh, you know, there was always the opportunity to taste wine. and. Uh, yeah, it didn't take long from the time I started tasting wine to the time I realized that it really was something that I, I truly loved and uh, was really interested in. So uh, throughout my restaurant career, uh, you know, I constantly was, was improving and evolving in my, my wine knowledge. I uh, uh, did my uh, sommelier certificate uh, with the Corps de Sommeliers, uh, worked as uh, assistant sommelier under, you know, one of the great sommeliers, Paul Greco in New York. Um, so I've, you know, I've had a lot of uh, uh, exposure mm-hmm. to wine and have really kind of pursued it uh, as a passion more so than anything else. Um, I guess it was probably around 2008 or so, uh, I'd been in restaurant ownership and just was beginning to truly hate the industry um, and at that point you know I kind of was thinking of ways to get out of it and you know I, I grew up in a family where you know I come from four generations or three generations of, of medicine and so you know that was sort of the, the pull but you know I didn't have a true interest in it when I was a kid either that or I just was too interested in doing my own thing and kind of <laughs> you know, kind of screwing off and, uh, um, you know, so when I started to think about it, I realized that I don't have, there's not a lot of things that, that enter into my head when I think about what careers are. Uh, just, you know, medicine, law, business is, is kind of what I, what I knew and, you know, I knew those weren't going to be, it's going to work for me and, well, I, I kind of knew that. I, I, you know, by default ended up taking the LSATs and applying to law school and got accepted to law school and realized quickly that I, I, that was not where I needed to be. That was not going to hold my interest. Um, in fact, a couple, a couple of relatives that are attorneys called and, you know, were like, nah, you just get the fuck away from that. Just <laughs> run, run, don't do it. So, you know, the more I thought, 
uh, the more I had trouble coming up with anything. And, you know, it, 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 I guess it was around 2009 when I finally realized I needed to be done. I, I ended up having a, a four-level cervical fusion, and, you know, I, I just I couldn't, couldn't kind of keep up the pace, you know, of, of restaurants and running from restaurant to restaurant and running kitchens and, you know, the 18 hours, seven days a week, you know, 362 days a year. And uh, so, you know, I, I started to realize that I, you know, my, my, I still loved wine. As much as I was hating food and restaurants, I still had that, that burning passion for wine. And, you know, so somebody suggested, or somebody asked me if I'd ever worked a harvest. And I was like, mm, hadn't really thought about it. And I started thinking a little bit deeper and realized chef plus sommelier probably equals winemaker. So, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, did some digging, and uh, uh, you know, I'd been to a, plenty of wineries tasting, and you know, had always, you know, tried to find my way into the back and, and meet winemakers and, and see see wineries. And so, at that point, I kind of made the decision that that winemaking was the path I was going to going to pursue, and uh, got rid of the restaurants and uh, did some consulting. Uh, at a at a place in Pennsylvania for a while, and uh, did that for about eight months while I was trying to get some prerequisites taken care of. Um, you know, I already had uh, uh, degree in in uh, uh, a degree in uh, 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 English uh, kind of poetry, and at that realized that that those prerequisites meant nothing for the <laughs> wine industry that was all science-based. So got some prerequisites done and then uh, ended up going down to New Zealand uh, to do my master's degree in winemaking and went down and uh, ended up staying down there for about two and a half years, did three harvests down there, did my master's degree. And uh, yeah, I guess that's that's why wine. The wine, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm gonna come back to a lot of that, but I wanna Good. back up for a second here because I'm curious about you mentioned kind of entry to wine, which is a, a common story for us, entry to wine through food, through restaurant work. Tell me about first experiences with wine that you remember, first first things about wine that intrigued you, and, and sort of the process of learning about wine on your way to the like becoming a master psalm. Uh, not a master psalm. Uh, oh. Level two, sorry. Okay, um, becoming a psalm. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, so, oh boy. Um, I wish I could tell you what the wine was. But I can't. I was. This was. It was so many years ago. Um, but I remember sitting. I was. I was at the time working as uh, a waiter. I think it was maybe my senior year in high school at uh, a restaurant in New Jersey, and uh, they were doing a wine tasting. And the chef asked me if I wanted to taste. I was like, Yeah, of course I want to taste. You know a 17-year-old kid, so yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I kind of approached it, you know, like I'd, I'd tried some wine before and, and, and enjoyed it, but I was like, oh, great, this could be an easy way to get, get drunk at work. And I remember taking the first step. I remember the first sip, and it was a Pinot, and I was blown away. And, and it kind of was at that moment that it really captured, uh, captured my attention and, and realized that this is, yeah, this is something more than... Uh, more than just uh, some red juice in a glass. And from then on, I mean, I was just, just hungry to learn more and more. Uh, tried to, to position myself next to people that I thought knew wine. Uh, tried to get my hands on as much as I could, uh, which was a little difficult at that age. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I managed. Uh, and it was, 
I think really early on in my wine tasting career that I, I understood that I, I have a good palate. Mm -hmm. I understand the difference between good wine and bad wine, which 17, 18, 19 years old is not really a great thing because I certainly couldn't afford, <laughs> already couldn't afford the wine that I preferred to drink. Um, and through all of that, it was always Pinot. Uh, and then Riesling to an extent that, that kind of captured my attention. Uh, you know, I have a soft spot for, you know, Zinfandel. I have a soft spot, obviously, for Cab Franc. I produce it. But it was always Pinot and Riesling that kind of were in the forefront of my head and, uh, you know, kind of did what I could to, to get my hands on it and learn about it and, uh, you know, forced my way into, into people's offices looking for positions and looking for invites to tastings and uh, you know fortunately in the restaurant industry it is a lot easier than it is in, in for a lot of other people but still um, yeah and it just kind of progressed from there and I really you know I, I just found a true passion for it and you know the more I tasted the more I realized that this is this incredible whole world out there of, of wine and you know there's so many nuances so many differences so many regions and everything brings its own you know its own little spin to the table and it was just amazing to me to see to, to see how those those wines would unfold and and you know same grape from you know not just a different region but same grape from same same region same AVAs you know maybe even a half mile apart or same vineyards different elevations different slopes different aspects and and the differences in impact that they had on the wines just always always intrigued me always you know and to this day it still does mm -hmm. you know so mm -hmm. yeah I guess that's kind of you know that that's the short version of of my kind of journey in pursuit of, of wine and uh, I think that's probably the best the best way I can I can say it mm -hmm. yeah so you, tell us a little bit about your your kind of journey through you mentioned kind of starting as a busboy ending up as a restaurant owner obviously a, a lot of steps in the middle there are a lot of places tell us about some of the some of the places some of the experiences and, and kind of the the, the path th forward for you all right so let's see uh, out of high school I moved to Vermont. Um, you know, took a took a year off, and at that point, you know, I had dreadlocks down to my ass, and and was following the Grateful Dead. Uh, did that for several years, and kind of used college, uh, you know, as a stopping point and a way to kind of you know keep uh, uh, keep at least a little bit of a little bit of help coming from uh, from from the folks. Um, but that didn't last very long. Um, and throughout all of it, I kind of maintained restaurant work because it, 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 it was obvious that, that it was one of those things, no matter where you were, you could always find work in a restaurant. Um, so, boy, I moved around quite a lot uh, through, my, through my late teens and 20s. Uh, you know, but primarily at that point, I, was, uh, uh, I walked the line between college student, uh, Deadhead and ski bum. So, you know, if you kind of chart my path, I, you know, lived in Sugarbush, Vermont, which is a very prominent mountain. From there to Stowe, Vermont, then to Vail, Colorado. And so I followed snow and uh, stopped and, you know, did a year of college in all those places. And so, um, uh, you know, and, and at some point, I, I, you know, throughout all of it, I just kept working in restaurants. And, uh, you know, after I guess probably, oh boy, 
after a couple, just a few years in restaurants, I realized that, uh, uh, you know, I liked being in production. So I focused on being in the kitchens. And, uh, you know, I guess probably by the time I was 20, well, let's see, that would have been, yeah, 23. Uh, I'd already had, uh, you know, uh, a sous chef position at a, at, a, at a prominent restaurant in Vermont and realized that if I was going to go to that kind of next level, uh, I probably needed to go get a degree in that. So I went to, uh, ended up in culinary school at New England Culinary Institute. Um, and that was, you know, I, I went obviously to, I, I really, I went to get paper, the bachelor's. I'd already kind of honed my, I ha had been working on honing my skills as a, as a chef. I knew the front of house. Uh, but I guess the reason I really bring it up is uh, we had a wine program there, and it was it was a just launched wine program, and the guy that was heading it was a guy out of Boston, I believe his name was Mark Davis, and he was one of the, I think the first ten, MWs in the country, so you know he was studying his MW to take his MW uh, while I was in school, mm -hmm. and I was you know clearly. I was a little bit older than a lot of these, a lot of the other students. I uh, had a lot more experience and uh, had already developed a real passion for wine. So he kind of became a mentor, for, uh, my first mentor in wine. Uh, you know, he used to, I used to spend hours with him tasting and kind of helping him study for his MW, which gave me access to a lot of fantastic wine, a lot of great knowledge and spent a lot of time just picking his brain, tasting with him, and uh, uh, just kind of soaking up everything, mm -hmm. everything I could. Um, and at that point, it was still focused really on kind of wine from sales and front of house perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and you know, I really, I, I understood the, at best, the basic flow chart of production just because I had to understand it. Uh, to pursue my my SOM certificate, um, and he was you know he was very into it. He was one of these guys that would blind taste and tell you you know vintage, side of the hill, all that stuff. Um, and I realized as I was tasting with him, I got better and better and better at identifying these things and picking these things out. And you know I think that helped me a lot in in my my chef career as well as as well as moving forward into wine. Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of where where I really where you know the idea of, of wine as a as a job or a career, not winemaking, but that psalm aspect mm -hmm. really kind of sunk in. And he was the first guy that I really uh, kind of did deep dives into into the wine world with. Um, let's see, where are we going with that? I already lost my train of thought. We're just kind of taking you through the food 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 part of your career. Yeah. So uh, continued along with that. Um, you know, when I finished, uh, or through culinary, I was working at a restaurant in uh, uh, Bristol, Vermont, named Mary's, really a well-recognized restaurant, uh, sous chef under a guy named Dave Haney, and he was just a fantastic, fantastic chef, and, and he let me explore kind of, you know, a lot of things that I wanted to get involved in, uh, in food, one of them being uh, the Vermont Fresh Network. Uh, I was part of his team that was the found, as the founding members of the Vermont Fresh Network, which uh, uh, kind of went on to become the national, or the template for the National Farm to Table movement. Um, 
you know, and, and that was kind of where I, I really developed an interest in, in local and the idea of, of good in, good out, mm -hmm. uh, which is really tra it translated over to my winemaking mm -hmm. uh, at this stage of my life. You know, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of heavy focus on, you know, picking the right, picking the right ingredients. You know, and, and at this point in my life, that's fruit or grapes. But uh, yeah, a lot of you know, letting letting the ingredients and and where they where they kind of came from or or for food, you know, to put it in wine terms, the terroir kind of shine through. And uh, yeah, so I, I from there, let's see, I was in Vermont for quite a while, and then uh, back to then I was out in Vail. Uh, for a year, I was working at uh, uh, Sweet Basil, which had it's an amazing wine program, and uh, you know, skied uh, during the day, worked there at night, and in between, uh, enrolled in classes in Colorado Mountain College, which was, believe it or not, in Lion's Head Vale. Here's the ski lift. Here's an Irish bar. You had to walk through the Irish bar, take an elevator down. And that's where the classrooms were. <laughs> so between the mountain and the bar, there was not a lot of school that got done there. Um, and so just kind of kept pursuing food and wine and skiing and music. And uh, uh, let's see, back to uh, back to Vermont for a while. And after that, I went back down to uh, New York, New Jersey. Um, went down and worked at Gramercy Tavern in Manhattan in 2000, 2000 I believe it was. Um, I was there for a year. Uh, at the end of the year, uh, I ended up buying my first restaurant uh, in New Jersey, uh, Sinclair's. Um, it was uh, uh, very, very high-end, contemporary American emphasis on fresh seafood. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the reasons I had chose that restaurant is it was in a town called Milburn, uh, which has three liquors, th three liquor licenses, and f 42 restaurants. So it's a lot of BYO, and I knew I wanted to be in that town because the the client base was fantastic. It was kind of a no lose situation. But the reason I chose that spot is uh, it it was it was in a uh, it shared the building with uh, a very high end wine shop. So despite not having a liquor license, I always had wine, um, and they would deliver. We became very good friends. We would trade food for wine, and they would bring them over for the customers. So I was able to have a wine menu and. You know, I, I just started just really kind of building and building and building, and I had come off working with Paul Greco at Gramercy Tavern, so I really was deeply into into kind of the pursuit of wine at that point, and uh, uh, so had the you know so I had Sinclair's, and then let's see, and then I ended up uh, I ended up taking some time to go back to Vermont. Uh, and do some consulting and kind of commuting between the two, um, and uh, then I then let's see. So then I sold. I ended up selling Sinclair's because it, it was it was it was just after September 11th, and took I took a bath. I mean, I, I lost a lot of good customers. I lost some friends. Uh, that was a bit of yeah, it was a shit show. But uh, stay away from that. But uh, you know, I think it, so. It was it was it was time. Uh, after after that, the area was really hard hit, so uh, mm -hmm. got rid of that. 
uh, restaurant and then uh, was focused in Vermont for a while, uh, rehabbing this inn and their restaurant and wine program. And some new owners had taken over and I had a great, I mean, I just had a fantastic contract with the owners of this inn. And then these new owners came in and they were just horrid, horrid people. Um, and so I had a bunch of paid vacation, so I uh, decided to take 10 days and go down to the Caribbean. And well, long story short, uh, uh, I came back a year and a half later. Uh, <laughs> I, I, when I was down there, I, I, I happened to be in a restaurant on St. John, and I, we were staying, uh, my, my buddy that I was traveling with, we stayed late and we're talking to the bartender, he's another kid from, from New York, and we were just kind of shooting the shit. And, uh, uh, after closing, and I hear a voice coming out of the kitchen, this southern drawl, and it sounds incredibly familiar. So I asked uh, the bartender, this guy Dave, I'm like, your chef's name isn't Roth, is it? Turns out he had been an intern for me. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, he was getting ready to leave, and, you know, he asked me what I was doing. I was like, well, I just. I got rid of the restaurant in, in New Jersey, and you know I'm here on vacation because, frankly, I can't deal with the new owners of the inn. And uh, they offered the owners were down there, and with Roth leaving, they had offered me a job on the spot. So, ended up buying a, a lot of T-shirts and resort shirts and shorts, <laughs> and stayed for a year and a half. Um, came back, started another project, restaurant project in Philly. Um, uh, partnered with a friend of mine uh, in his nightclub, which then transferred over to a restaurant uh, in Old City, Philadelphia, called The Griffin. Um, you know, it had a lot of focus on, on fine wines and, and fine food and, and liquors. Um, let's see, ran, did own that and ran that uh, for a few years and then kinda, you know, that ran its course and I was really starting to kind of burn out at that point. Um, and was starting at that, I was really starting to look for the, uh, look for an exit strategy mm -hmm. from restaurants at that point. And I swore I'd never go back to the Caribbean and I uh, got a call from, uh, uh, got a call from a guy down there who had gotten my name from so-and-so, who had gotten it from so-and-so and asked if I wanted to come down and open two restaurants on St. Croix for them. Um, <laughs> And I had no interest, and then they, they made me an offer that was too good to pass up. So went back down to the Caribbean, um, and was down there, I guess, just over another year. Um, opened, uh, opened the restaurants, got them running, and then it was time to come back to the States. Uh, the Caribbean gets uh, very old very quickly. Um, you know, and, and let, it's, yeah, the Caribbean, it's, it's just, I like winter. Uh, you know, I like snow, I like winter. How I spent that many that that long down there is a mystery to almost anyone that knows me. Um, let's see. So came back to the states. Um, you know, had entertained the idea of another restaurant project in New York, um, and you know, it, it kind of started down that path. And the guy I was going to partner with was uh, uh, a pretty miserable human being. So scratch that idea and, and kind of that was right around the time that I, I realized that you know I, I, it was it was time to really be out of restaurants and yeah that, so kind of come full circle to, to you know taking on uh, that consulting position in Pennsylvania and getting my prerequisites done and then leaving for New Zealand so that was sort of the the 
the abridged version, or the short version that's that amazing. I got there. That's quite a, quite a path. Yeah, a couple steps left out here and there, but yeah, all in all. Obviously, fine wine, uh, a kind of a constant through line for all the places you were working. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me about building a wine list, and, and obviously different places have different needs. I'm curious, sort of, for you, as you were starting to build, build those wine lists, what were you looking for, and what did you find to be the successful strategies? Well, I think they're two very different things, and you know, and it, it's, it's, I think it's the same in food and wine, is you kind of come into it as an idealist, and, and I wanted, you know, I'm gonna make this, uh, you know, and just like food, I'm gonna make something brand new that no one's ever seen, and it's gonna be great, and that people are gonna love it, and this and that, and then you start to realize that, yes, people will love it, but 10% of the people. The rest of the people want the same, the same steak, and the same lamb shank, and, you know, the same Sauve Blanc, and the same Chardonnay, and the same Cab. So I started out with these really eclectic wine lists, you know, pulling stuff from all over the world that, that people couldn't pronounce and didn't know, and wines that, that I figured, well, if I have them on the menu, people are gonna love them, and realized that what was selling was those few bottles of, you know, on the high end, Stag's Leap, of course. Mm -hmm. So I started to kind of zero that in and, and you know, put, I guess, more, more uh, on the higher end, more commercial wines, that I, I responded to, and then you know would start peppering in uh, kind of more eclectic wines, and and you know and hand selling them, uh, even if it meant coming out from the kitchen and, and talking to tables, which I you know was kind of have done all the way through. Uh, as much as I've done front of house, I always end up kind of crawling back to my hole. You know, <laughs> I, I, I I can put the good, I can put the smile on, and for so oh, so long before I, I'm just ready to be done with it so uh, and I think that's you know same thing in wine is, is I like being in I like I like the production side I like kind of you know being able to to kind of face the public on my terms when I'm ready um, so uh, yeah so you know, always end up back in kitchens just like I always end up back in the winery but uh, so yeah I just started playing around with different wine lists and and you know kind of I, I started slowly moving further and further away from the things that I liked, and, and you know those became uh, smaller parts of it at the beginning mm -hmm. um, that I would kind of hand sell and showcase. And then as I had people rotating through and becoming regular regular customers throughout the different restaurants, I would start adding you know the ones as I was hand selling and catalog which ones were selling more and which one people were coming in and I, and I had enough good regulars that were coming in going oh yeah so and so told me to come in and you know they had this wine and so uh, so I sort of reverse engineered the wine lists uh, you know I guess I, even though I started with this eclectic menu that got scrapped quickly put together a very was started with very commercial menus and then started kind of moving towards that more esoteric mm -hmm. um, and found got a much better response that way mm -hmm. and you know at that point started getting into hosting wine dinners and uh, uh, you know a lot of pairings things like that but yeah I guess that's kind of the, the you know easiest way to, to, to get at it sure. Yeah. With the with the list, the, as, you, as you call them, kind of the ideal lists or the you know the the the, the perfect list for you. Uh, where were you? How were you discovering those wines? How were you finding them for yourself? 
uh, any opportunity I would have, I would I would get out to wineries and taste. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to have uh, a lot of family and uh, you know a good chunk of family in California. So you know, we'd go out with visit. I'd always try to sneak away and get out to wineries to taste. Uh, I had distributors coming in all the time. Uh, you know, and and you know, one of the things that. Uh, uh, that I learned from my family very young was the kind of the art of, of, of schmoozing people. So I would, you know, these distributors would come in, I would feed them, and in exchange, they would, you know, come in two, three days a week with open bottles. And, you know, throughout my career, I would just have a glut of wine coming through to try and, and just, you know, kind of whatever I needed to, whatever I needed to put out to kind of get those. It was always seemed like a small price to pay. And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, and, you know, kind of being the assistant psalm and uh, at Gramercy Tavern, places like that comes with its own set of perks. You know, you get invited to the, the super tasting in New York and a lot of the, the real industry, you know, the, the, the real big, the big industry events. Um, so, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be in an area uh, and at, at a level that I was being invited and included in a lot of these, a lot of these kind of exclusive, these exclusive tastings and events. Uh, so I was able to kind of, you know, get myself mm -hmm. uh, a lot of exposure mm -hmm. to some great wines. So in the time, uh, the, the, the time you were in restaurant, some work, mm -hmm. did you notice, uh, obviously you were in different places, but did you notice a change, change in your customer base or change in what people were looking for in wines or, or their knowledge of wines or the questions they were asking about wines. Did you notice it changing in any way? Well, I, I mean, I, th I think naturally as, as I improved my skills, I would attract a, a more knowledgeable crowd. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that, that really hit home kind of in, in 2001 uh, was my first big, uh, uh, my first big media piece. Uh, I was showcased by the New York Times as uh, number two young chef in New, or number two chef under forty in New, in New York, New Jersey, um, and that uh, you know that article that was a fairly big article and, and mentioned uh, my love of wine, mm -hmm. mentioned uh, my work as a psalm, uh, and that got a lot of especially in the tri-state area huge readership and and you know kind of especially in the in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, whatever the New York Times writes about food is kind of what sticks to the wall. So uh, I went from a restaurant that was doing well and had full seats to being booked out three months in advance and you know a lot of people were coming at that point and, and you know wanting to, to learn more about wine so I was able to kind of have a little more freedom and, and really kind of showcase wine a little bit more. Um, so yeah I, you know I, I'm not sure I, I think it was. I think it changed as a, a, in direct response to to my growth. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah. So you're you're done with restaurants and you decide. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> sort of done with restaurants. <laughs> I know it's always pulling you back. And you, you decide That's... you decide it's time to, to to dive into the other part of wine, to the production part of wine. Yeah. So tell me about the choice to go to New Zealand specifically, and, and then tell me about your experience there. New Zealand was. Amazing. So the choice to go to New Zealand, um, once I decided that that was going to be the path I wanted to pursue, um, the first decision obviously was where I was going to do my master's. Um, uh, you know, naturally, like everyone else in the States, you start with Davis. That's, you know, kind of what we know. So 
I spoke with the people at Davis and I was really disappointed by them despite the fact that I'd already had I had a degree uh, they wanted me since it wasn't science-based they they wanted expect to get a winemaking masters they wanted me to go back and do two years of undergrad and then do the masters and you know it's kind of like well you know at, at that point I just may as well go to med school um, <laughs> and that was you know I, I, I was kind of blown away by that um, not to mention the fact that you know uh, being in restaurants, I, you know, I could, couldn't afford another five years of school at $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, the decisions were uh, 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 Burgundy, New Zealand, or Australia. Uh, I took French for eight years, but working in, in restaurants as long as I did, that kind of became Spanish. Uh, so I, you know, I wanted to, to do you know, do my master's in a place where, I, I, you know, English was the native language. Uh, so that got it down to New Zealand and Australia. Uh, New Zealand was the choice because my, my dad and his brothers uh, come from a family of, of mm. to say avid fly fishermen grossly understates it. <laughs> my family is responsible for the uh, uh, American Fly Fishing Museum in upstate New York. And yeah, it's, it's like a whole, that's an obsession. Um, and they fish all over the world and always have and they started doing an annual trip to New Zealand uh, uh, to, to trout fish and that went on they did that I think annually for 17 or 18 years and developed a lot of good relationships uh, with guides one of them happened to also own a vineyard in Nelson um, and they became you know the, a couple of these guys became very close you know, almost members of the family. You know, they would they would fly up to the states for family weddings, things like that. So uh, it was this guy Greg Chisnell uh, down in New Zealand, and and he was a fishing guide as well as a vineyard owner. And you know, so my dad suggested I give him a call. Uh, called him. He's like, hey, I've heard so much about you. Blah blah blah. Uh, you know, I heard you were thinking about coming to school in New Zealand. Well, you know, I'm always here. You know, you always have a resource and and basically family. And uh, he's like, and besides, I'm, I want to retire from the vineyard. I want to get rid of the vineyard soon. So if you really love it, you know, that's something we can always discuss down the road. Um, so that seemed pretty good. And you know, they, they, every time they came back from New Zealand, the pictures they showed were just unbelievable. Uh, the stories were incredible. So that, that seemed like the place to be. So yeah, so headed down to New Zealand, uh, did the masters at Lincoln. Um, and then this, so my first, uh, uh, before I started school, went down and did, uh, you know, toured up, well, toured Hawke's Bay, wineries up there, then went down to uh, Queenstown, Central Otago, and the second, you know, I drove into Central Otago, I just, I fell in love with the area. Um, the mountains, the snow, the climate, uh, everything about it was, it was, it was, it, it fit. I mean, I, I, you know, I was on skis since I was three years old, so, you know, to see the Southern Alps was amazing to me. Um, so, you know, I was doing some wine touring and kind of drove into, uh, actually, I think when you interviewed Robert, uh, he had worked at Chard Farm in 2010. I was there, I, I was there 11, 12, and 13. <laughs> uh, we just, just made that connection. So, you know, as I was touring, doing wine touring in, in, in Central Otago, uh, one of the places that, that one of our stops was Chard Farm. You know, we drove up uh, this little, I mean, the, the driveway is about a mile long. It's about that wide, and it's on the edge of a 
foot drop to the Cow Route River. Uh, so I drove up and immediately I, I was like, this is where I want to be. You know, it just, it felt, it felt good, it felt right. So I went in and being the pushy New Yorker, I asked for <laughs> the winemaker. They're like, oh, mate, he don't, he's not gonna, he's, he's all tied up. I'm like, well, you know, he's like, well, yeah. And then I asked who, who you know, who, who, who Tom's here. I'm like, tell him it's Ryan from New York. <laughs> he has no idea who the fuck I am. But just tell him it's Ryan from New York. So goes back and, and this guy, come, he comes back, the tasting room guy, and he goes, uh, he says he's busy and, and he's wondering how he knows you. And I'm like, you know, sorry, I'm like, just go back there and tell him to come out, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, he'll, he'll know me when he sees me. <laughs> so he comes out, this guy John Wallace, and uh, comes out and, you know, he's like, do I know you? I'm like, no, you have no idea who I am. <laughs> But this is who I am, and this is I want to work here. And he's like, ah, we don't take on first-year interns. I'm like, you don't have to pay me. I don't, you know, just I'm going to be in school in Lincoln. Let me come down on the weekends and work. It doesn't matter. And I wore him down enough. Uh, and they are notorious for not loving Americans. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I wore him down enough that you know I I I didn't give him an option to say no. Um, so he's like, all right, that's fine, you know, come on back. And so I started just commuting down there on the weekends and days off and, you know, take classes off and go down and work. And by the time harvest started, he realized that I was, I was the real deal and that I was going to work. And even though I was, you know, 10, 15 years older than any of the interns, you know, uh, I, I was going to, I would, he, he, there was no way he was going to get me out of there. So he may as well put me on the payroll, I think, was his thinking. And uh, yeah, and then I just kind of stayed on for, for the next three vintages. And, you know, in between would go down any chance I got. And uh, yeah, so we still keep in contact. And he was, uh, he was, I, I, you know, he was really my first mentor for, for production. He, uh, you know, he, he right off the bat, I, I liked him because he he had, you know, a lot of the similar ideas, or or you know that I thought that I wanted to have when mm -hmm. I made wine, uh, minimal manipulation, really showcasing vineyards, being very careful with grape selections, um, native yeasts, all those things, mm -hmm. and so uh, on top of that, it was it was just it was such a beautiful place, uh, you know, they really kind of brought me in and made me part of the family so much so that that you know the owners uh, uh, Rob and Gertie Hay uh, have a separate house on the property for their 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 boys um, and uh, they kind of you know kicked them out so I could live there for a month and a half and uh, uh, yeah and so I just stayed on there for three vintages uh, I worked in the vineyard uh, you know when I had any time I had the opportunity and yeah, I just really loved it. And then in, so that was 11 and 12, then 13, uh, went over to the Hunter Valley. Um, so made wine in Australia, and then back to Chard Farm. Did So I did harvest in the Hunter Valley, harvest in uh, uh, in New Zealand for, for the last harvest in 13, and then the third harvest, I came back and did it in Oregon. Um, and that's how I got to Oregon. Well, that is a question I'm going to ask in just yeah. a second, yeah. but I'm, so I'm curious about, obviously, in New Zealand, you, you have a wide, at this point, a wide wine education, but first time doing production, and you're in class and also doing production. Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about learning it and doing it at the yeah. same time and how that, kind of how that went for you. Well, first off, I was, 
absolutely shocked at how different production and production side and sales side were. You know, because I'd had decades of exposure on the sales side and all that, but really, but n no practical exposure to the production side. So, you know, I kind of came in uh, thinking that I was going to know all this stuff and, you know, and I was going to be so far ahead and realized, you know, by the end of the first day that, you know, it, with the exception of the, the taste and flavor class, I knew absolutely nothing, um, which was honestly great. It was really, it was, it was nice to kind of, to learn, learn it all over again. It was, I mean, it was, a, it was a bit of an adjustment being back in school. I, you know, I'd finished my degrees, I'd, let's see, so 11, 15, 15 years earlier. And uh, during that time, as you've seen working in the school, I went from a paper education to a digital education. And so that was a bit of a learning curve. Um, you know, and, and it was, it was a little, it was a little intimidating at, at, at first, uh, looking around and realizing that, that with, you know, maybe one or two exceptions, I was by far the oldest student. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, that, I kind of, you know, I, I made friends quickly and, you know, kind of found a, a, a great group of people down there. And, uh, so that, that kind of, you know, that, all those feelings kind of fell by the, fell by the side pretty quickly. And yeah, it was so, yeah, I think the biggest thing was really kind of jumping into production and realizing just how different they are. Everything, you know, er, kind of everything you learn on that sales side, psalm side is, is, is so different. It's almost, once you're in production, you, uh, you, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, you realize that most of that sales side is just the art of bullshit, you know? It really, truly is just the art of bullshit. Um, you know, and then on the production side, you, I, I realized real quickly just how science-based and technical it is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what I really loved about it is, along with that, is this, all this room for the art side of it, which is really how I approach it. Um, you know, the science is, is fine and good, but, you know, I, I just, I, I really try to approach it as a chef. Mm -hmm. um, and. You know that's kind of this, that's kind of where the last vestiges of of my chef life uh, are apparent is is my wine production. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know I really look at the grapes and and barrels and uh, as my raw ingredients and and put them together in, in the way that I think is gonna is gonna come out and, and taste best at the end. Um, so you know I don't work I've never worked as a chef with recipes. I, I, you know, kind of approach wine the same way. Every every wine, every year, every every vineyard is different, mm -hmm. and they'll get handled differently every year. And you know, and I just try to do my best to make them hope they taste good at the end. So yeah. So you found your way to Oregon. I did. Why? Pinot Noir and Riesling. It's that simple. I get that question a lot, and it's the best answer I can come up with. Um, like I said earlier, it was Pinot Noir that really brought me in, mm -hmm. and it's been Pinot Noir that's really held my attention, along with Riesling. And you know, uh, when I was trying to figure out where to go, I knew that my path was going to take me to starting a winery. Um, and when I started looking at, at where that was going to be, you know, first off. Yeah, I'm starting a winery on a credit card and a couple dollars of savings. Um, 
so California is immediately ruled out. Um, but I really wanted to, so it, it came down to either New Zealand or, or Oregon, and uh, my girlfriend at the time came to visit me 18 months after I was in New Zealand, stayed for a couple weeks while she was there, we got engaged, she came back to the States, and then six months later came back, met me in Australia, and then back to New Zealand with me. Uh, you know, we've been married now for six years, and we have a child, but, uh, you know, she, uh, she and her mother were very close. Um, you know, when I left for New Zealand, to rewind, when I left for New Zealand, she was at the airport, uh, her and my, my folks to see me off, and, and my, my, I, my dad turned to her and goes, you know he's not coming back, right? And uh, <laughs> it's, kinda, it's kinda been my habit, you know? <laughs> Go somewhere and call in and say, sorry, not coming back. And I, I wouldn't have come back, honestly. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for my now wife, Gretchen, I, I, I would have stayed in New Zealand. Um, so I couldn't convince her to, uh, to stay in New Zealand. Um, so, you know, it was kind of determined that the States is where it was going to be. And based on that, Oregon was the spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I was coming. You know, I'd, I'd been selling and drinking Oregon Pinot and Riesling for years. And uh, uh, so I knew I had to get out here and at least do a harvest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, yeah, that was it. So before we get to you actually being here, I'm curious, uh, you said selling and drinking Oregon wine for, for years. Uh, what was your impression of, <coughs> of the Oregon wine industry from, from that perspective, from the outside perspective? And then uh, how did that change, if at all, once you actually landed here? I knew very little about the actual industry happening here. Um, what I knew was, uh, you know, winemakers and winery owners that came to the East Coast to sell wines. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of them were obviously bigger houses with the budgets to do so mm -hmm. uh, and the budgets to get the distributorship nationally. Um, so I didn't have a particularly good feel for it. Now I, I should rewind, I did spend seven months in Eugene in 92 or 93, I was living in Vail and you know ended up coming out here. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I knew a little bit about Oregon, but I'd never really, you know, that was still so early on. I, I you know, I was 19 years old, so I, I didn't really spend any time uh, up in the valley. I was pretty much Eugene and, and Mount Hood and Mount Bachelor. Um, and uh, so I really didn't have a very good feel for it. I, just, I, I knew that, that the Pinots that I, the domestic Pinots that I loved were all coming from this area. Mm -hmm. Uh, as well as the domestic Rieslings, so uh, I knew Oregon was beautiful. I'd, I'd had enough experience to know that, that it was a friendly, easy place. Um, and I knew it wasn't as cost prohibitive as California. So yeah, got back from New Zealand, spent a couple weeks on the East Coast visiting family and friends, uh, and then packed up and, and drove out. Um, had a, uh, uh, I was actually supposed to have done harvest in Burgundy that year, but it was 13, they had those massive hailstorms that wiped out, you know, 80 percent of the uh, the crop, so they cut all uh, all non non European visas. Uh, so I scrambled. It was I got back late July from New Zealand, uh, thinking I was going to be taking off for Burgundy in two weeks, and then that got cut. So I was scrambling uh, at that point, and uh, you know I, I put put resumes out to anyone I could I could find, uh, and uh, I'd gotten you know, five or six responses saying, 
you know, why don't you come on as Harvest Chef and, and we'll get you into the winery. And I was like, nah, not interested in that. They're like, well, your resume says you are. I'm like, yeah, well, no. Nah. Thank you anyway, and ended up getting offered a job uh, over at uh, the Carlton Winemaker Studio. Um, so yeah, so landed here September. Well, I got here September fourth of two thousand thirteen. Uh, I, I remember that date because it's my birthday. We coordinated a cross country drive and getting to uh, getting to the valley for my birthday, and uh, yeah, so I spent thirteen working at uh, the, the studio. Um, which was a great learning experience. I mean, I had access to, you know, some fantastic winemakers over there, obviously. And I think one of the things that really worked to my advantage was, you know, being, you know, 40 years old. Uh, and, you know, I, being 40 years old, having owned my own businesses, um, I was able to approach, you know, guys like Eric Homaker uh, as an adult rather than, than as a, a first and second year 23-year-old intern, and I think it, it made a lot of difference. It, it allowed me to uh, uh, kind of pick, I, maybe pick the people that I, I was kind of aligning myself mm -hmm. with over there. So I, I really, uh, I spent that first that first harvest trying to get my hands in as many people's wines as possible, and, and really, you know, asking a lot of questions to the point where I'm, I'm sure there were times that I was a nuisance, but you know, so be it. Um, you know they're peers now, so <laughs> I guess it worked all it worked out all right. But uh, yeah, I mean I really used that that experience as as a way to, to learn as much as I could in as as as, as short amount of time as possible. And you know I, I kind of uh, it was a guy named uh, Lance Palazzi. Mm -hmm. uh, he was running the studio at, that year, and you know I, I kind of pulled him aside. And I was like, listen. Um, uh, Mark Wall offered me, uh, you know, some grapes and uh, an old barrel. If I want to use it as a fermenter, is it, is it cool if I just kind of have my own little project? And he's like, yeah, you just got to kind of keep it quiet. So, you know, I, I made a quarter ton of, quarter ton of grapes and uh, uh, an old barrel with the, with the head knocked off as a fermenter. And uh, so my first vintage technically was 2013. Um, uh, and for intern wine, I thought it came out great. Um, and let's see. So during during that first year, I had met Alan Methven, and uh, you know he and I started talking. And uh, somewhere along the line, I don't even remember how it happened, but somewhere along the line, um, so uh, you know someone that I become had become friends with that was a chef had. Uh, recognized me from one of the publications I'd been in and uh, you know and he's like hey are you this guy I'm like yeah that, that was me and so next thing I know I was being called by a couple of restaurant owners in the, in the area and asking if I would do some, some consulting for them and since I was getting established and needed the money I, I did some consulting and some restaurant consulting the first uh, uh, you know, after after harvest in 13, into 14, and then in 14, um, I'd been talking to Alan. Oh yeah, that's it. that's how it got me there. So one of the restaurants that I was doing some consulting work in, uh, Alan was a good. Alan and Jill Methven were good regulars, and uh, so I had met him. And and every time they came in, I'd end up talking to him for you know 15, 20 minutes, a half hour. And at some point, he's like, so you know, what are you doing about your your about wine? Like well, I, I really would like to kind of start my start my label this year, and he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I got a great winemaker uh, up there, Chris Luberstead, 
and uh, why don't you come up there, talk to him, and if you want to make some wine, just you know, trade if you if work as assist, as assistant as his assistant <laughs> uh, in exchange. So I came up and met Chris. We hit it off immediately, and he's still he's probably about my best friend uh, in the valley, and he was my first you know mentor in Oregon. Um, and so that's how I got to meth then, and yeah, I guess, you know, so 14 was, uh, so 14, yeah, I started here as the assistant, as assistant winemaker, started my own label, uh, was going down at six in the morning to do punch downs for uh, uh, Stengland, um, and then uh, was working for uh, Thibaut Mendes, uh second project, uh, the Wine Rat, and uh, Alaman. Uh, helping them out over at uh, uh, over in Carlton, uh, and then consulting for restaurants. So I was I was yeah it was that was that was nuts. And I was also helping Jim Seifert out. Um, I, again, anything to anything to kind of get myself immersed in the in, in the area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it became real clear in thirteen that that this is a small community, uh, and that it's it's a very kind of closed closed community. And you know you're kind of as welcoming and open as as the industry is here. It's I think it, it's very easy to become friends with, but a little more difficult to sort of prove that you know you're here to you know to 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 help. Mm -hmm. So I you know I yeah I had like eight jobs <laughs> in 2014. Um, you know, and most of them I was like, I don't, just give me a couple bottles of wine, whatever. You know, I was anything I could to to get my hands in it, and uh, so yes, launched that that first year, did 150 cases, uh, along with everything else, and then uh, realized that uh, I loved I loved doing it. I loved the idea of having that label and and doing doing it for myself, you know, I'd, I'd always loved, I mean, I bought my first restaurant at 26, I, 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 27, uh, I've, I've always wanted to work for myself, mm -hmm. so I've always enjoyed working for myself, and yeah, so, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that answers your question. By the time we're done with this, I, I, I forget what the initial question That's, was. That so. is exactly <laughs> the goal of this, so no worries there. So tell me about, uh, you mentioned that coming out of school that you knew owning a label was going to be the thing, that was where you were headed. Yeah. So as you're, as you're planning for that, you've had some mentors, you've had some ideas for kind of what kind of wines you're going to make, how you're going to make them. Tell me about getting off the ground, uh, coming up with a name, coming up with a label, finding, finding grapes, find, you know, and starting to kind of fine tune what would be your style and philosophy. Well, let's start with the easier, easiest ones. Finding grapes. Finding grapes I found incredibly easy. and. You know, I, for that first year, I, I was getting grapes from uh, Duke's Family Vineyard. Uh, only person at the time to have ever gotten grapes out of Moayub, um, and uh, uh, and then Methven, their eight two eight block. And you know, I think one of the things that I'm really proud of that I've done and that I did in my early days here in Oregon was. Being a bit older and, and honestly being a New Yorker, uh, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more assertive, a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit more aggressive, maybe I don't know, whatever it is, um, you know, I, I I I'll put myself in front of people and and you know and hope it goes well. So I you know I befriended 
Pat and Jackie Dukes and, and you know, uh, uh, Moayub and, and a lot of people that, that, you know, when I would get grapes, especially my first and second year, people, how the hell are you getting grapes from them? And, you know, I just asked, and that was that. And, you know, it was small enough, it was a ton, you know, so I ingratiate myself enough that they'd be willing to do it. And uh, So, yeah, I, I've been very fortunate with, with the grapes and the vineyards I've been able to work with, which is so important to me because like I, I said earlier and what we'll continue to repeat is is that's that that's you know those, those are my raw ingredients and and you know I, I like I, I am I, I put very you know I, I put a lot of care and a lot of a lot of thought and a lot of love into into the wines that I make but that's it I don't put product in you know I, I you know I, so I, it's really important to me that, that what goes in is 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 up to snuff, I guess, is up to my standards. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I found it, I, I think, compared to a lot, of, a lot of stories I hear, I found it much easier to get my hands on grapes. Mm-hmm. Um, I developed enough friendships and relationships, or at least had gone, you know, at least proven that I'm, I'm, I'm here to do this, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not just a trust fund kid, you know, kind of, they can do whatever they want, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is what I want to do, and, and I'm a, I'm a grown-up and all those things and you know so that 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 part has come easily uh, for me uh, last couple of years have been trickier but that's just I think part of you know the industry growth as well as my my labels growth mm-hmm. um, so okay so that answers the first part what else were we what what, what else was there talk about your name ah the name oh yeah that's a that's a whole story unto itself jeez okay so. 2014, um, my first vintage, uh, my aunt passed away, uh, and, you know, she was, uh, uh, you know, my grandparents had both, both, or all all four of them, I think it all passed away by the time I was 16, uh, so, uh, my, my aunt Linda and uh, my dad's sister had kind of become the matriarch of the family, and she was a very well-known, uh, well-respected calligrapher in New York. Um, so the initial idea was calligraphy. Um, so had the attorneys run trademark searches. I was working with a local graphic designer. Uh, he ran a trademark search, uh, came back clean. So, you know, we did this, you know, we did calligraphy and, you know, really lovely label, uh, on a linen paper. And so fast forward now to early 2016, I was, uh, had Castile, the mobile bottling truck here. Uh, my folks had come out from the East Coast uh, for my first bottling and had bottles on the truck and labels spooling up and I get a phone call and I, rarely will I answer uh, an unknown number from an unknown area, from an area code I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I answered. I think I was just in a rush and pulled the phone out of my pocket and picked it up and this was, this, uh, is this uh, calligraphy wines? I'm like, yeah, yeah, who's this? And blah, 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 my name is so-and-so. Uh, I own the name calligraphy, um, so you need to stop using it. I was like, yeah, okay, well, you know, I, I did the searches, blah, 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 blah. Uh, came back cleared, nothing in that space. He goes, well, you know, you need to call your attorney then because I own it. So I uh, called them up, and they, they looked at it, and I guess what had happened was he was a restaurant guy 
in New Jersey from two towns away from my restaurant who through a mutual friend of a mutual friend down there uh, had heard that this guy that used to own Sinclair's was now in Oregon and he was starting a winery uh, named Calligraphy and he had had the idea to use Calligraphy as a name uh, to sell bulk wine uh, you know years earlier and had never done anything with it so when they ran the uh, the trademark search it came back clear you know he had forfeited it uh, through non-use and I guess when he had heard this he he reapplied for the trademark and I, I submitted being in Oregon and went to the West Coast branch, his went to the East Coast branch, his cleared first but they had already run the searches so yeah it was a whole big nightmare so you know and this is where the New York this is where the New York comes out and if you're gonna edit for language this will be the time um, so he kinda calls up and, and he's like you need to stop using it and I'm like well you know can we come to some agreement uh, you know, I spoke with my attorney, and, and I understand that, that, I mean, you used to own it, you hadn't used it in, in five, six years, it sat idle, um, so what kind of agreement can we come up, up with? And he goes, well, yeah, let me think about that. And the second he said that, I knew he was just fishing for money at that point. So I'd always had a second name in the back of my head, and that was Communique, and I'll kind of get to that after after we get through the story. But uh, so, you know, I tell him, I'm like, you know, give me, give me, Give me 20 minutes. Why don't you think about what, you, what, what it would take to get the name cleared from you and, and call me back and, and we can discuss it. So I took that 20 minutes to have myself, my brother, and another friend get online and buy every domain name that could possibly be associated with calligraphy wine. <laughs> so now, knowing that he owed none of them and I owned all of them, I wait for his call back. And he calls back and he goes, so, you know, I've given it some thought and this is my plan for use of the name and I think uh, you know I, I think probably twelve thousand dollars would be a reasonable amount for the name so I'm like alright just you know let me think about it so I call my attorney back and tell him he goes listen if you have another name use it I can get you the name but it's gonna cost you more than twelve grand to do it so uh, so the guy called, so I'm like, all right, that's, that's fair. So I had this other name all, all you know, all figured out and, and uh, are now owned all the domain names. So he calls me back and I'm like, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $1,000 and two cases of wine. And the guy goes, that's not even in the ballpark. You know, we're going to need to kind of do better than that. And I'm like, well, then what do you got? He goes, I'll do it for nine grand. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I think the closest we're going to get is 150 bucks in three bottles and he goes uh, yeah no I don't like I, I don't like this conversation I go well then get fucked so hang up the phone and stop the bottling and you know got back together with my graphic designer and he's like dude that's terrible I'll, I'll read if you have a name we'll redo it you know at no charge and this and that so you know, coming from, uh, so yeah, so that, that's where that was. Uh, my, to my knowledge, he's never done anything with the name. Um, uh, I held on to all the domain names for five years um, to make sure that he couldn't, and at least by that time, if he didn't do anything with it, at least the name would be free for anyone else to use. So, uh, so yeah, so that was that uh, as far as calligraphy goes. Now, the big bummer was it was an homage to my, to my aunt, and, and I would have really liked to use it, uh, but it wasn't the end of the world. Uh, so communique 
was that was the name that I was going to use until my aunt passed away. Um, so communique, you know, coming from uh, uh, you know English major and liberal arts, uh, you know, I've, I've always loved language, and that was. One of the, you know, for some reason that that word has always been powerful me, to me. You know, I guess for anyone out there that doesn't know, it's it's French for kind of the general idea is an important communication, um, and so to me, it, it just seems to work for for what I do. You know, and it works on two two different levels. First, uh, on a very familial level, uh, I, having lived all over all over the world, uh, I have friends and family all over the place, and I have friends that I consider family all over the place. So, you know, on that level, I look at it as my kind of communicate to them that I'm good, everything's good, this is what I'm doing with with life, and I'm happy. Uh, on a on a more kind of kind of consumer level. Uh, I look at it as this is my communicate to the world as to what happened in our little corner of wine country in any given year. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah. So that's kind of kind of how I, I came up, how I, I kind of zeroed in on that name. It just it seemed to make sense to me and uh, uh, kind of lent itself to to a wine name. Um, I've never been one that, that wanted to have my my name on on a wine label. Uh, uh, you know, so I knew it had to be something other than, other than my name, and yeah, so that was that. So incredibly glad I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, t so, t so tell me about the wines themselves. Obviously, you mentioned you had ideas for what what you wanted to do. You had mentors who kind of showed you the way. You had the idea of you know this this notion of the importance of grapes and the importance of that. So, tell me about taking that concept translating into the wine and, and, and how, how fast that happened for you? Was that, were you immediately happy with what you got or did it take a little while? Never happy with what I have. Um, I have my whole life been my own worst critic in everything. Um, you know, I, I honestly, even, even with articles in the New York Times and, and Food and Wine and this and that, I, you know, I, I never believed that my food was good, you know, and, and I'm the same way with my wine. Um, so, you know, I knew, I, I knew when I started in 14 that the grapes were going to be the most important thing. Uh, from there, I knew that, you know, I had, I had enough knowledge to know what I wanted to do with those grapes. And honestly, Chris was a good enough mentor that I was able to kind of have, you know, pick his brain to fill in the rest. Um, so in 2014, I did, I did one wine, 125 cases. Uh, it was uh, uh, my 2014 Yamhill County blend, and it was a blend of, like I said, Duke's Family Vineyard, uh, Methven 828, and Iuba State. Uh, so you know, couldn't ask for better fruit. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I got in here. I, I, that first year, I, you know, bought a couple of, uh, bought one new barrel and a couple of two used barrels and, and then begged, barred, and stole fermenters and, uh, and that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, I, I kind of, it, it, was, it was great to be able to, all the little things that I'd learned over the last several years to kind of be able to put them together for my own thing and uh, you know and, and at the same time uh, 
you know, have have my hands in, in Methven's production and 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 uh, 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 Tebow's and 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 Stanglin's and all that, um, and just you know, so it was. I really was. I was so nervous. Uh, that first year, especially, you know, I, I, every everything I did, I thought was wrong, and every time I tasted, I, I I was like, oh my god, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. It was, you know, friends constantly talking me off the off the ledge. I'm like, I can't believe I this is what a mistake. I can't believe I've just poured everything I own into this, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I it, it came out all right. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was 2014, um, and you know. Now you know I have I think I have three bottles of that left and and uh, you know anytime we revisit it I, you know I, I love it mm -hmm. um, at the time I hated it but that's I'm kind of like that with everything these guys will tell you around here that I am incredibly neurotic I and it's the, I, it's the same story every year and they all make fun of me I uh, every year I get completely neurotic about my wines. Um, and start trial, bench trialing everything in the book and never once have added anything I've bench trialed. I, every year I go through the same bench trial process and every year I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing any of this stuff. <laughs> so I don't know if it's just, you know, it, it's, but I, I honestly I think that's what kind of keeps me, it, it keeps me improving and it keeps me learning and keeps me hungry to, to learn and, 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 and yeah, just better myself as a, as a winemaker. Tell me about the uh, again. You, you obviously come from a long, a long wine sales background. Mm -hmm. uh, now you finally have your own wine uh, with your not your name on it, but at least a, mm -hmm. a name you chose on it. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me about taking your wine to market for the first time. <laughs> sucks. <laughs> that sucks. That is the absolute hardest part of this industry. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time. I do a lot of private tours, and you know, I I, I can't stress especially to anybody trying to get into this industry, how hard, have sales first. Understand the market before you start producing wine because the truth is, is you could throw a bunch of grapes in the corner and it's gonna turn itself into wine, <laughs> but it's not gonna sell itself. And so I really, I really thought, I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I've been in restaurants all over the, you know, I have a good, good reputation. Uh, you know, if I make it, it's gonna get bought. And I think we all start start out thinking that way, and what we realize real quickly is that's just not the way it works. Sure, I, I have five five restaurant friends on the East Coast that want to buy it, but no good without a distributor. And that's you know that's that's the hardest part mm -hmm. is sales. Um, you know, I, I've talked to so many of my friends about starting out, and we all have the same story. You know, I penciled it all out. I did the you know I, I did. Did the performers and the uh, and the projections and oh yeah that first year I'm gonna I, I got enough I'm gonna be rich and uh, then you realize real fast that that wine you know yeah all those friends that you thought and all those family that were gonna take a case or three cases each uh, would love to try it but you know trying to get them to buy it is a whole other story and the same thing with uh, with restaurants and it, it is just it, it is the most frustrating part. Uh, of this of this industry is the sales and uh, uh, I don't love doing sales I'm, t I, I'm, I'm I can sell wine I am all right I guess the best way to say it is I'm, I'm, I'm great at selling wine not my wine yeah I can you know I can you, you you know put other labels in front of me and have me go out 
you know, to tables and restaurants, and I'll sell it all day long, but not mine is, is just too hard, and I don't know if it's, it's I'm, I'm so hypercritical of it, you know, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I, I'm just, I'm horrible at it. But that being said, um, you know, I, I, I have had some success selling it. I, I've, you know, I've been, I started out with some, some distribution, um, uh, you know, kind of got burned by a, a New York distributor. Uh, early on, um, like a rite know. of passage. Yeah, that's what I've come to understand. It is a rite of passage for sure, um, and that kind of got me to shy away from distribution for a while, and uh, uh, you know, and, and focus a lot more on direct to consumer. Um, I do. I still. I work with an in-state distributor, um, and uh, uh, I think uh, this spring I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know, I have some East Coast distributors that are that I, I you know want to work with me. That I, I think I'm I think I'm gonna gonna try again. Uh, but I'm I'm really you know in the last last two years I've realized that that direct to consumer is really what I need to build. Um, so I've been working really closely with uh, a couple different wine tour operations. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of private tours through here throughout the year and have managed to build. Uh, a really strong uh, uh, customer base that that you know they consistently order cases or multiple cases mm -hmm. several times a year mm -hmm. so that's been great um, and then part of the the distribution is one of the things that uh, one of my other little side hustles is uh, uh, and this is where I was at you can never really get away from restaurants um, is as, as much as I don't want to be in restaurants I, I was approached to do come consulting for uh, 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 a publicly traded restaurant aggregate company um, and so I've started doing that and uh, part of the agreement is uh, uh, some distribution channels to some of the, the, the places we own so that's all kind of going to get up and running in the next couple months and so that's going to provide uh, a strong distribution channel for mm -hmm. me but uh, yeah I think that that is by far the hardest part of this mm -hmm. is is this sales and getting the name out there and, and you know getting that brand awareness gets harder every year um, you know I haven't been here that long uh, you know it's funny up until this year I still considered myself like the new kid on the block and then uh, I was talking to one of my friends they're like do you realize you're not anymore I'm like what do you mean and he's like well you start you've been at this, this is your eighth year now and when you started there were literally half as many wineries in the state of Oregon as there are now. So you're really <laughs> part of that original 50%, even though you haven't been here that long. So um, so yeah, it gets harder every year to get to kind of get that, that brand awareness. Um, but you know, I, I've gotten, and, and I'm just, I'm horrible with social media. Uh, you know, I'm right on, right at that age where, you know, it kind of escapes me, but I, I should know more about it. Um, you know, so the few times that I, I've tried to have a social media presence, they've it's actually gone fairly well. Um, I just, I just don't, I, I just, I, I don't understand how to maintain it. Um, so I, I, I've just partnered with a, 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 a guy I know from the East Coast that's that's heavily into marketing and digital marketing, and he's gonna work on that. But uh, you know, I, I think for as much as I've put into actual actual marketing, I, I, I think I'm. I'm way ahead of the game. I have put very little into it and really uh, focused more on, on kind of those, you know, making personal connections, mm -hmm. whether they be with, you know, restaurant wine buyers in the area, or whether they be on, uh, with restaurant wine buyers 
nationwide or whether they be with you know people from around the country that come to the valley uh, and working with you know and go on these tours that I've worked with I, I think that for me that's been the most successful uh, uh, you know channel of sales mm -hmm. um, so yeah that is it's it's rough it is rough <laughs> so and you know, like I said, we all think we all come into this thinking we know something that everyone else doesn't, and that we're going to be able to sell all the wine. And yeah, it just doesn't quite work that way. So, yeah. Uh, so you had mentioned earlier, uh, besides Pinot, obviously Riesling, uh, another uh, uh, another passion, uh, and a more a more uncommon one for us to find. So I'm curious, um, the where the Riesling kind of passion comes from, and also what you have found about Oregon Riesling that that excites you. Well. I, the passion for Riesling comes directly from Paul Greco. Uh, working with him in New York, he is just, he is enamored by it and he's, you know, he is like one of the, uh, probably one of the nation's biggest Riesling pushers out there. And uh, he really helped kind of, you know, I've, I'd always liked Riesling. Uh, I just always had a hard time understanding it and knowing what to get. And, mm -hmm. and he, so he, I really worked on that quite a lot with him and, and he really kind of took me by the hand and led me through Rieslings and, and made me understand them. And the more I understood them, the more I, I loved them. Um, I mean, they just, they have so much history and so much depth and they can take on so many different forms. Um, you know, anything from sticky sweet dessert wines to, you know, these beautiful aromatic, you know, Dry, uh, almost dry wines and and everything in between, and they can, you know, they can support high acids, and they can, you know, uh, I just I I think that they're just they're gorgeous, and that they there are so many different expressions of them, you know, Pinot, Cabs, things like that. They're all a little different. They all have their nuance, but. You know they're they're fairly focused and in, in you know you can you can speak in generalities about almost all 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 wine grapes and I, I believe Riesling is, is one that you just you can't speak in generalities about so it really kind of captures my attention and I, and I you know and I, I also have a uh, except for the fact that I'm you know a generations long Yankees fan I always tend to root for the underdogs and Riesling has become an underdog um, you know I remember uh, growing up. You know, that's that's what my mom and her friends drank, that and White Zinfandel. And, you know, I, I remember watching commercials with Orson Welles for Black Tower and, and sneaking sips when I was a kid. And as a kid, I loved it, you know, sneaking sips because it was sweet. And, uh, you know, and, and but I think that that whole era, that, that late 70s and 80s, just kind of, you know, made just kind of gave this impression that that Riesling is just this sweet dessert, mm -hmm. sticky mm -hmm. wine, and and it really kind of fell out of favor. And and uh, uh, you know, I, I've had more people come through, and and you know, this is I mean, my, my spiel verbatim is, you know, people will come in, and the first thing they'll say is, oh, the first wines are Riesling, we can skip that. And I look at them, I'm like, and, and I say the same thing every time, I'm like, listen, you're not paying for the tasting. Try it. What you, it's not going to hurt you. It's not poison. If you don't like it, spit it out. Throw it in my face. I don't care. And but but just try it. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I think 99% of the people have come back and, and enjoyed it. And most of them have bought it. So yeah. So um, you know, I, I think you know any. I think anybody, you know, kind of in that 
mid thirties and up really just have this impression that that it's going to be sweet and cloying and all the things that they're not looking for and and don't understand what it really is and uh, you know just a little bit of education goes a long way with it. So, yeah. I hate to tell you this, but the Yankees are kind of an underdog now too. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, but the, you know the fact is they're never really an this, underdog. This is true. They always have the, the they have the depth in the pockets to always always make a statement. Always, so. to always disappoint you in the end. Ah, uh, they too so, often. So tell, so tell me about the the evolution of of your brand from the 150 cases originally to now. Obviously, you've added Riesling along the way. You've added uh, uh, Cabernet Franc along the way. Tell me about that evolution and, and what, what, what is the kind of, is there a goal in mind for, for size or scope of, of the brand? So, well, it's been, I mean, it, it has not been kind of a, a linear journey. Um, it's been really up and down dependent. So, okay, so let's start with 14. My first big mistake was 2014 producing 125 cases of red wine. Um, I learned that in 2015 when I was paying for another vintage without a saleable product. Um, so, you know, started with 125 cases. Uh, in 15, you know, 14 came out great. And so, yeah, I probably went a little bit bigger than I should. I think I produced, I think I went from 125 to about 700 cases. Um, but I, yeah, I had access to all these, this great fruit. So in 15, I started, so, you know, 15 is, so I went from one, one label in, in 14. In 15, uh, I added uh, Riesling, uh, my first Riesling vintage. I added uh, Rosé uh, and then two single vineyard uh, two single vineyard Pinots, uh, a single vineyard Dukes and a single vineyard Calamity Hill, uh, along with the Am Hill and along with uh, the Riesling and Rosé. Um, so that was about, yeah, five, six hundred cases. Um, Sixteen, I finally did my product launch. I uh, did my product launch in, uh, uh, in New Orleans. Uh, I have some distributorship in New, in New Orleans. Um, and so that, that went well. I, I sold, I sold, uh, the, uh, probably the, the big majority of, of the wines that I had had released. So 16, uh, I really got ahead of myself, and I, I think I, I produced uh, over a thousand cases um, worth. Uh, realized, you know, I, I was I set out to do to do 600, and you know, then it got to be later in the season, and people were like, oh, I, I got I have an extra ton and a half from this vineyard. I'm like, I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. And before I knew it, uh, I bought way more fruit than I had planned on and had no money left for bottling. So I uh, bulked out some wine in 16 and then uh, uh, I think I ended up labeling labeling for sales uh, probably about, again, 600 cases. Um, 17, uh, I kind of got a grip on things a little bit, a little bit more firmly uh, and realized that, that all of those grapes that people are offering me for little to no money from these great vineyards come at a pretty high cost because I'm still paying facility fees, still paying for bottling, still paying for filtering and labeling and all those other things. Um, so really tried to rein myself in quite a bit. Um, was in, at that point I was, I was, you know, I had this and then I was helping out 
uh, a friend with their project. Um, and again, still all the way along, I will, even now, I will help out as many people, that, as many friends as need help during harvest, as much time as I can find. I'll do it, you know, just for, for no other reason than I enjoy it. And, and the more I see, the more I learn. Mm -hmm. um, so 17. Um, yeah, kind of reined it in, uh, at a, you know, capped it at about five, six hundred cases. Um, Eighteen, uh, I expanded out and added Cab Franc. Cab Franc is, Pinot and Riesling are, are why I do this. Cab Franc has always been my other, my other true love in, in wine. And it's, it's one that you just don't see a lot of. Um, and uh, I think there are a lot of reasons why. Uh, it makes a great blender, and there's a lot of, you know, but it makes a great standalone wine. But it needs to be, I think, you know, you have to be careful with Cab Franc to make a standalone wine. Uh, uh, the grapes, the, the, you know, the, the grapes and vineyard are, are, are incredibly important. And then, I, you know, there's a lot of little nuance, I think, in the production. Uh, method, you know, I think one of the, you know, the overwhelming flavor profile or flavor characteristic in, in Cab Franc is that kind of green pepper, that methoxypyrazine, and, and you know, I unless you're, you're careful and confident with your production, I, I, th I think that could come really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So it took me, I mean, I, I looked for Cab Franc for probably two or th probably three years. Uh, before I found the vineyard that I, that I wanted to to work with, and uh, you know, and I, I approached it really carefully, and and you know, and and what I ended up with, well, you tried it, I, I think was 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 really good, and was really happy with it, and you know, it kind of it, it proved to my I proved to myself that you know, like I like I said earlier, I, I've always lived with this this kind of fraud complex, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think. That cab franc was was I think kind of proved to me that that maybe it's not just luck, you know. Like I kind of like okay, well, 14 I got lucky, wine came out good. 15 I got lucky, the wines came out good, and so on and so forth. And and you know, but at that point it was like okay, well, you know, I got a pretty good handle on the riesling and the rosé and how to work with pinot, uh, you know. And then when I added. The Cab Franc, uh, and it, it came out well. Uh, it's like okay, so maybe, maybe I kind of know a little bit what I'm doing. But at that point in 2018, uh, I also started to uh, 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 to bring on clients. Um, so uh, so yeah, 2018 life got harvest got really crazy because I was doing my wine uh, plus uh, you know client wine, which was you know equal to about three times or four times my production. Um, and off-site, so it was a lot of commuting and a lot of crazy late nights, and yeah, so uh, so there's that. And then so uh, 19, uh, 19, I had I had some some health things, and and so I dialed production back quite a lot, um, uh, a lot smaller than I would have, knowing that 20 was going to be what 20 was. So 20. You know, when I kind of looked at everything, I looked at my inventory. I looked at I looked at uh, 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 finances, COVID, smoke, and decided to scrap the year. I took the year off from 20, and then back this year in 21 or this past year, um, and yeah, I think uh, uh, I read around a thousand cases this year for Communique, and then. You know, and then I brought on a small client uh, that you know did uh, 
uh, about 200 cases, and then my bigger client, uh, we got up to, I think we did, I did 2,600 cases for this year. Um, so, That's yeah. a lot. Yeah, and moving ahead, so the, the, you know, I'd had that client 18, 19, 20, and 21, and, and uh, decided that it was not really tenable to maintain that, that, that production. It was, uh, uh, the commute's too big. It's, it's over two hours each way. And yeah, it just wasn't, you know, I, I think my, my wife told me if I, if I did another, another vintage with that commute that we, we'd be done. So <laughs> she couldn't take it anymore. So I, you know, I knew it was, I, I'd known the year prior to that that it was probably time to, to sever that relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I kept it another year, and yeah, I think it's run its course, so. When it comes to working with client wines, obviously you're dealing with someone else's ideas on, on top of your own. Tell me about working with, in those parameters and making wines that you feel proud of, but also reflect what, the, what your client wants. Well, yeah, that's a bit of a loaded question on, on uh, you know, on some level, and, and really it's, it's out of the couple clients I have, you know, the, the small one that I picked up this year is, is a friend and is new to the industry and it, it really, I, I think, he chose me because he likes what I do. So that, that's, I have a lot of freedom there. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, but the larger client that I just, that we, that we, that I broke ties with, that was, well, on some levels it was great. Um, and I, I think what I love most about it is he really, or they really strive for a very diverse portfolio. So, you know, in, in the four years I made wine for that project, I got to play with everything. You know, Tempranillo, Sangiovese, Malbec, Zinfandel, Merlot, Cab Franc, Cab Sauve, uh, Chardonnay, Rosé, Sauve Blanc, you know, so I, I, yeah. So I, I really got to get my hands into a lot of grapes that, that you know, I, I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really loved that part of it. Um, you know, the, but at the same time, you know, the wines that, that I was making for that project were, were like polar opposite from what I do with Communique. I mean, everything there was, was inoculated with cultured yeasts. Everything was, was fined and filtered. Uh, there was no extended barrel aging, no bottle, no extended bottle aging. Um, so it, it really was the exact opposite of what I do, um, you know. And, and I had decided early on that, that you know, I, I didn't necessarily want my name attached to the project. And it's not that I wasn't that I was making bad wines, um, and it's not that I wasn't proud of the wines I was making. It just wasn't, it wasn't what I, I wanted to be associated with Communique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I tried to tried to keep those very separate, um, but it was you know it was interesting to to it gave me the opportunity to really kind of understand winemaking kind of as a as a as a whole mm -hmm. uh, and understand all the different approaches. Um, you know I'd been looking at it from this very kind of uh, natural. No, I, I hate naturals become a buzzword in winemaking that I just don't subscribe to. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, this very kind of more artistic form and, and, and more free form where every, every wine and every year is going to taste different from, from the previous and from the next. And, uh, you know, to the idea of creating this sort of house style. 
Um, and you know, and and so I really I appreciated that, and I, I really I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the ability to kind of I, I guess to kind of practice my craft and and you know and and be able to apply what I'd learned and and what I know uh, in two very different different ways mm -hmm. and, and to get to the same sort of end result. So what comes next for Communique and for you? Oh boy. Well, what comes next? Uh, I mean, you know, ultimate goal in the next three years is I would like to, especially having this this new distribution channel as a springboard. Um, you know, I don't ever see Communique growing to more than fifteen hundred, two thousand cases, um, and that would be as Communique itself. Um, you know, the goal is in the next two to three years, I'd, li I'd, like, I'd like to have our own facility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, one of the reasons that I, I've stayed at Methven so long is, you know, I would have actually, our initial plan was to have a facility by, uh, by 22, but 19 and 20 with COVID just, just took that off the table. So, um, but the reason I, I've stayed here is, is you know, it, it, it's very comfortable and, and uh, the camaraderie here is fantastic. It's just a gr great group of winemakers and everybody, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there's always someone that'll, that'll put, if it's four in the morning that I'm on the crush pad, normally someone will stick their hand up and say, oh, dude, I'll hang out for a couple hours, and, you know, vice versa. So that's been great. But, I, you know, I, I think... You know, I think I'm at that point where it's it's time to look for my own facility, and not necessarily from from a production size standpoint, but more of a, an equity and future standpoint. You know, I'd like to have, I'd like my my daughter to have have something that whether or not she goes into winemaking, she can at least sell and cash out on. But uh, <laughs> I've become very very pragmatic and with age. You know, I used to be the consummate idealist and. Fuck money, uh, sellouts, blah 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 blah. Now, if I could sell out, I'll sell. I'd love to. Um, but uh, so yeah, I, I think you know I, I don't see Communique ever really growing past you know 1,500, 2,000 cases. I think that it's a good, that's a good number to to maintain control myself, control over by myself, and 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 you know and and still maintain quality. Um, you know I I. I'm not, you know, I, 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 interns are great, but you know, I, I used to do the same thing in, in my kitchens. I, I would run myself ragged because, no matter how good they were, I, I never trusted them to make sauce X and sauce Y, and you know, so I, I just, you know, it, it's very important to me that I, I maintain the, kind of those controls because I'm, I'm the first and last step in, in quality, and, and I'm, I'm, it's my face on it, so. Um, so yeah, I think you know we're going to start looking for uh, for space, um, you know, and, and I think uh, uh, one of the other reasons uh, that we would like our, uh, like a facility is uh, uh, exposure to the public. Um, you know, I've been asked for years uh, about ta about a tasting room, and you know, I give the same answer every time. In I, I don't see value. In, from for me in an, in an offsite tasting room, I you know I, I just don't for me I, I don't I, I don't see the value in having a twenty something read from a piece of paper about the wines you know and because you know for me it's about it's about 
the wines are me. That's what I do. It, it's who I am at this point. And so, you know, I, I like having the tour groups come through because it, it's me. I, we barrel taste. We do the whole thing. And, and uh, so any tasting room I, 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 I'll, I'll ever develop will be part of a, a winery so that I'm there and I'm, I, I'm accessible. Mm -hmm. um, so even if it is that 20-something manning it, I'm there. And, and the guests will always have access to me. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and, and in a perfect world, uh, I'd like to open something large enough that, that it can function as a small custom crush. Mm -hmm. um, as much as I like my alone time in the winery, I, I've also come to really enjoy the, enjoy the camaraderie during mm -hmm. harvest. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's really, I think, you know, and I think that it's gonna become uh, a lot more Feasible to get it done in two years with with this kind of these new these new distribution mm -hmm. uh, lanes opening up. So yeah, I think that that's where we're going, and and you know I keep toying with the idea of doing a, a, a smaller sort of restaurant distribution second label, and you know and it's, every 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 two months is another idea, mm -hmm. and you know kind of keep them on paper, and you know the ones that that work will work, and the ones that don't will just kind of fall away. So, yeah. The, the blessing and the curse, right? It really is. Yeah. Yep. Just like everything. Well, we talked a little bit earlier about kind of your initial impressions of, of Oregon wine, and obviously you had them before you got here a, a bit. So tell me about what you've seen as a part of the Oregon wine industry in the time you've been here, um, and maybe what you see happening next. The Oregon wine industry is amazing. It truly amazing. Um, you know, coming from my background, you know, I, chef high level in the most competitive market, arguably in the world. Uh, uh, I, my friends, you know, kind of my list of uh, list of friends from that life were a who's who of people that, that you'll know and and everybody else knows. And despite the friendships, on a Friday night, if you run out of demi gloss, you, you don't call. You, you know, you don't call a friend and ask for a lifeline. Um, it's just too competitive, friend. You know whether you're fishing on the weekends together or not. It's 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 cutthroat, and you know I, I started developing friendships with with winemakers and winery owners from California because they were the ones that were more present, doing sales to us in the East Coast, um, and I knew that I, I I learned real quickly before I before I was in production that that California industry is a lot more like the New York restaurant industry. Here it's, it, it's at least was, it, it's so open and sharing. I mean, some of the, the, the most respected winemakers in the Valley, you know, I, I, if I have a problem, I can call 10, 11 o'clock at night and I'll get on the phone and talk me through it. And I mean, that's just irreplaceable. Uh, it's, it's allowed me to become, you know, what I am, a, wine, a winemaker that, that really, that, that I think, you know, has an understanding of, of the business and the craft, and, and I don't think I could have done it any, anywhere else, mm -hmm. you know. Possibly New Zealand has a very similar feel, but uh, as far as is in the States, I don't, I don't think it could have happened anywhere else. I mean, I've been able to come in to this area in, in, in the first year, develop relationships with, you know, vineyards that, that are, are coveted mm -hmm. and they were open and welcoming and brought me into their homes and you know became became 
like family mm -hmm. uh, so quickly and it's it's especially coming from from New York it's not something you're it's not something a mindset that I'm used to um, so it seemed so foreign to me at first but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's been amazing, and it's been a, you know a huge asset trying to do this. I also don't think there's anywhere else that I could have come in with a couple dollars of savings and a credit card and started a winery. <laughs> so uh, so Oregon, I th I think in general has you know it's become. I think it's unfortunately moving away from that a bit, but I I, I don't think intentionally, and I don't think. And I don't think there's there's bad people coming into the industry. I think it's just it's grow, grown so fast that maintaining those connections and making those connections in the first place has become really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when there was just a, you know, I think when I I think in thirteen there was what three hundred and some odd wineries, mid mid three hundreds, and now what seven hundred? Closer to nine. Okay, so it's tripled in the time I've been here. So you know, I mean, it was it was it was small. There weren't that many people around, and it was easy to, to get access to them. But now, you know, every day there's a, new, a winery that I've never heard of. You know, and so. Tell me about it. Yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> you you get to see all of them. Uh, I just see the ones that cross my path. Or someone's like, oh, you know that winery? No. You know that one? No. You know, and. You know, in, in 13 and 14, it wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. You kind of knew everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so, you know, it, it's, I think it's trying very hard to maintain that kind of, that, that family feel. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's going to naturally slip away. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm really, really grateful that I was able to get in here and kind of get into this community before everything just kind of blew up mm -hmm. around us. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I'm also very, uh, very much a realist in that that without without the growth, we wouldn't we wouldn't be, you know, so kind of centered on on a world stage as far as our wine production and and you know I, I think it's really you know when I started in restaurants and started exploring Oregon wines, it was it was tiny. Um, and you know there was a few brands that were really well represented and then there were a few smaller ones that that were very good and underrepresented um and you know i just in my circle being in in, in wine and food you know, I, I didn't. I wouldn't realize until I started talking to other friends outside of the industry. Of, oh yeah, Oregon Pinot. I don't, what the? What, what are you talking about? You know, no idea. But now, you say Pinot, and it's really become synonymous with or Oregon and Pinot have become synonymous with one another. Um, so I think in that respect, the growth is is great. It's really given given us uh, a microphone on the world stage. But you know, it's also made it harder for small guys to carve out. Uh, uh, rec any type of recognition and reputation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, good and bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, that's all the questions that I have for you. All right. I'm sitting here talking to you all day, but I've got to turn the microphone <laughs> off at some point. So, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I'm trying to think. Not that I can identify. Really, anything? No, but it makes sense why your Riesling's so good. <laughs> so I was thinking the whole time. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I guess the only other thing I'd add is just maybe just kind of a little bit about 
you know the production uh, you know things like I, I you know I, like I said I, I natural winemaking is a whole buzzword that I that I, I, I don't get behind but so you know I, I guess I look at look at my production as, as minimal manipulation you know the things that I, I like to stress to people are uh, you know kind of rewinding way back um, to my start in restaurants like I said uh, uh, when I was 19 or 20 I, I was part of the team that started the Vermont Fresh Network so you know that idea of, of local and 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 natural has always been really important to me um, uh, over the years uh, you know it started out at the beginning of organics and organics is a whole soapbox that I'm not going to get on right now but uh, the vineyards I work with um, are all uh, uh, certified salmon safe uh, and uh, live certified uh, I don't put a lot of stock anymore in organic certifications um, but by proxy most of them are organic um, but you know at the same you know along with that you know like I said never cultured yeasts the whole the sum total of, of my additions in any given year will be uh, uh, acid and, and, and sulfur for bottling and, and that's it I, I, I don't use uh, wood adjuncts it's all real oak uh, I don't use you know if, if a wine is I, I would just as soon sell a wine bulk then have to build it with product mm -hmm. um, and that translates over to uh, kind of the whole thing you know uh, even even you know even uh, on the whites uh, all natural cork uh, I'll never use foils on bottles uh, as much as possible all my glasses sourced domestically um, when I started 14 and 15 I was the only one in the state using uh, 100% uh, sustainably sourced uh, uh, birch wood label, um, which has become impossible to get because there's not enough calling, and then yeah, just can't get it anymore. So now I'm using a, uh, a recycled non-paper label, um, and you know I, I think the only reason I bring that up is because I'm constantly being told I need to I need to use that as on my website. I need to market that, and I don't, and I don't you know maybe I'm missing the boat but I, I don't I don't believe it's a marketing tool I believe you either if, if, if you're using it as a marketing tool then you're probably using it wrong and that's that's what I believe you know I, I, I use those those products and I, I make the wine I make because I, I believe in it and mm -hmm. I, I think it's it's if I didn't this just kind of fucking things up for the next generation anyway um, so yeah so I, I really kind of that that whole minimal manipulation idea uh, is really something I firmly believe in, and when possible, my wines will get bottled unfined, unfiltered. So yeah. So I guess that's the only other thing. I like it. Yeah. All right. Unfined, unfiltered. We've always thought that should be the slogan for the archive. So that's, that's, that's <laughs> I like perfect. It. Thank you so that's much for perfect. your time. Thank you. You guys want to go taste? Let's go do some tasting. Let's go. Thank you so much. Yeah. My Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.